Good morning, Chapel Hill. Good morning, Chapel Hill. Thank you. It is good to be back with you. Last Thursday, the first wave of 51 of my closest friends and I returned from, uh, from the Holy Land. We're lucky to have gotten there. Uh, the day that we flew out, do you recall what was happening on all of the East Coast airports? They were all shut down in that so-called apocalyptic blizzard. So we rerouted a bunch of folks and we got there and it was a, it was a great time. While we were there, we continued with our 90-day challenge. And I've got to tell you that when you're reading about the call of Jesus to the first disciples on the shore of Galilee, and when you're reading about the first sermon that Jesus ever preached in Capernaum on the seats of the first century synagogue in Capernaum, and when you're reading the story of how uh, the people of Nazareth rejected Christ and, and were going to try to throw him off of the precipice, from that precipice, it makes it come alive. So we were with you thousands of miles away. We were going through that. For those of you who are visiting, our 90-day challenge is an invitation to read one chapter of the gospel every day for 90 days. And in so doing, you get through all four chapters. And that's what we have been doing. So I'm just wanting to hold us all accountable. How many in this last week participated in at least some way? You read some of the 90-day challenge? Good for you. How many of you were able to do all all seven days? Good for you. I'm not in the club. I, uh, I, I didn't... Thursday when I was on the airplane and so jet-lagged, I'm afraid I missed that one. I made it up. But for those of you who missed a day or two, join the club and we will just jump right back in. But it's great to have you. I've been, uh, I've been hearing from people that the difference that this is making in, in their lives. And I don't know why we should be surprised that when we read God's Word, it makes a difference. But here's a, a blue card that we got. Praise God for the 90-day challenge. It has brought me a new joy and peace I have not known. Why should we be surprised that when we read God's Word that it doesn't, doesn't do that sort of thing inside of us? We're asking ourselves the question, uh, what, does I, what do I learn about Jesus? And what do I learn about how to make disciples the way Jesus made uh, disciples? And, and then the, the following week, the sermon that follows, we look back over those seven days and the seven readings and ask, what are the principles that we're learning about how Jesus made disciples? And we've just gone through the owls. Do you remember what they were? The first owl was intentional and relational and unflappable and hospitable. So intentional. We, and by the way, when we're going through Mark, we're, re, we're revisiting the same things that we were looking at before. So when we go through Mark, what we read this last week, we were reminded that Jesus intentionally sought out the men that God had placed upon his heart to reach out to them. We're reminded that disciple makers must be intentional. They have to live their spiritual lives on purpose. And then we, we read about how relational Christ was. In chapter 3 of Mark, he says he called the 12 to him to be with him. And we discover that for Jesus, disciples are not projects. They are people about whom he cared deeply. And that we need, as the followers of Christ, when we make disciples, we do so because we love people. We care about them. And then we learned about how unflappable Jesus was. No matter how his disciples messed up, it didn't seem to fluster him a bit because he was in it for the long game. We saw an example of that, didn't we? When he calms the storm. He's out there in the water. He calms the storm and and all the disciples are terrified, you know. And, uh, and Jesus calls them little faiths, but he doesn't give up on them. He never gave up on them. And, uh, and we, too, should not give up on ourselves as disciples of Christ, nor should we give up on those that we're walking with when they stumble once in a while. And then last week, Pastor Larry preached what I think is the strongest sermon he's preached since he's been here. I listened to it, and I thought it was a terrific message. 
And very funny. I mean, what I wanted you to do is get to, a chance to see how whimsical Larry is. And he's, I think you're starting to get a taste of his humor, but also of his deep insight. And it was very funny. And there's one joke. I'm still wondering how, how that is uh, filtering out in the church. Awesome. <laughs> Anyway, Larry told us about how hospitable Christ was. And we see, again, in, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus is gathered, uh, with, and the Pharisees accuse him of eating with tax collectors and with sinners. What in the world would a good rabbi be doing? But as it turns out, Jesus' best ministry was done around a dinner table. And so the challenge to each of us is, and this is a challenge to me, as I've told you, I kind of like to pull up the, the, uh, the drawbridge on my moat and hide when I go home. And the challenge to me and to all of us is, when was the last time you had someone over for dinner? When was the last time you had a coffee with someone? That's the way that Christ made disciples. That's the way we do too. So those are the alls. Intentional, relational, unflappable, hospitable. Today we go to the ings, okay? And, and the, uh, the first ing that we discover looking back over this last week is this. Jesus made disciples by entrusting the kingdom work to them when they were not qualified. Jesus made disciples by entrusting the kingdom work to them when they were not qualified. They were underprepared. I got a a reminder of what it feels like this last week to be unprepared, underprepared, unqualified for dealing with something that mattered deeply. It happened on the very last day that we were there. It was Wednesday, and we were on the last site of the last stop of the last day in Jerusalem. And it's the place that I always end every tour with. The, the garden tomb. It's believed by many to be the place where Christ rose, and it is idyllic and beautiful. And of course, we go there and we have communion there. And the high point is to walk into, the, into that tomb, into the door of that tomb, and look there upon the place where it is believed that, that Christ rose from the dead. It, it's, it's just a, a life changer, you know. And so we were all waiting our turn to do that. And as we were standing there waiting our turn patiently, suddenly I heard screams. And I turned around and looked, and I saw one of our number, Janice, had stepped into a hole, and she had fallen to the rocky surface of the, of the area outside of the tomb, and it's all rock outside of the tomb. And so I rushed over to her side, and, and uh, I wanted to make sure she was all right, and she was not all right. Her left hand was perpendicular. Uh, both bones had been snapped. It was a terrible, terrible break. We have two doctors with us, and... Um, and boy, were we grateful for them. And they were immediately assessing her and checking her blood pressure and, and, uh, and, and uh, stabilizing her for transport to the, to the hospital. And frankly, with their competence, I felt, I felt out of my depth. I mean, I didn't know exactly what I should do to help with that. And I, and I do know this. Every time I looked at that wrist, I, I kind of got sick. So I, I was not very helpful in that respect. I'm a doctor, but I'm not that kind of doctor. And so I, I did the, the thing that I, that I could do. I went over, I went to her where her head was lying. And I, I knelt down by her head and I, and I cradled her head and I kissed her forehead. And I, and I, and I talked with her and I prayed with her and I joked with her. And I tried to help one of my broken sheep deal with this time of, of pain and, and, uh, and anxiety and, and fear. But I remember in that moment how unqualified and how helpless I felt. I, I, I wouldn't have known what to do with that thing. And I was so grateful that there were others that were there. And, and I wonder how many here this morning, when we're talking about this idea of disciple making, don't have some of those same feelings coursing through yourself. 
Even if you're willing to be a disciple maker like Jesus says, the fact is you, you feel unqualified, underprepared, like you don't know the right answers, like maybe you even get a little sick to your stomach at the prospect of, of doing that. And if that's the way you feel, I've got some good news for you from this last week's reading. The first disciples were just as unqualified and felt just as queasy about the things that Jesus was asking them to do. And yet, remarkably, we watch as Jesus entrusts to the disciples the work of his kingdom, even when they were not yet ready. And that's the, that's the theme I want us to see. Christ entrusts to his disciples the work of the kingdom even when we are ill-prepared, underprepared, unqualified. And it comes out most clearly, I think, in Mark chapter 3. Turn with me if you would. Mark chapter 3. And keep your Bibles open because we're going to be pacing our way through a few verses here. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. Do you hear the intention of that, by the way? He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have the authority to drive out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Jesus, what does this have to do with us? A lot. And I pray that it would be more than just an interesting story from a long time ago, but it would encourage us and embolden us to be your disciples. Amen. I want you to notice how, where this takes place in the gospel, what I just read. What chapter? That's very early, isn't it? Chapter 3? I mean, Jesus' ministry has just barely gotten started. In chapter 1, Jesus was by the Sea of Galilee calling Peter and Andrew and James and John. In chapter 2, he's calling a a, a tax collector named Levi, also known as Matthew, to follow him. He's just collected his guys together. These are greenhorns. These are are rookies. And yet in in chapter 3, we read these remarkable words. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach and have the authority to drive out demons. We might say, wow. Only moments ago these guys were catching fish and fleecing taxpayers. How could they possibly be qualified to go out and preach this gospel? How could they possibly be qualified to cast evil spirits out of people for crying out loud? They're just Galilean working folk. Honestly, doesn't it seem a little, a little hasty? How, how could these guys be ready to preach and to cast out evil spirits? How could Jesus take common, ordinary folks and entrust to them this kind of power, this kind of authority, this kind of responsibility? How could he do this with a, with a Peter and an Andrew and a James and a John? How could he do it with a with a Darla and a Michael and a Betty and a Dean and a Mark. How is this possible? As I was reading these last seven chapters, I saw a recurring theme that I think is is a secret to how Jesus prepares greenhorns to do extraordinary things. And we might feel like that, some of us. And we find it most clearly in verse 14. Take another look. Did you notice the first thing that Jesus expects of his new apostles? Did you see the, what's the first thing he expected of them? Do you see it? 
What? To be with him. Did you see that? He appointed 12 that they might be with him. It's only later on that he talks about the doing. But the first thing that Jesus calls the disciples to do is to be with him. He doesn't appoint the twelve so that he can teach them. He doesn't appoint the twelve, first of all, so that he can train them. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him. And only then does he go on to describe what they're going to do. The being preceded the doing. We turn it around, don't we? We get ourselves all occupied before we really understand the depth of a relationship with Jesus. We get church folks all occupied and we pass up the most important part, which is being with the Lord. It brings us back, doesn't it, to the relational thing that we were talking about in week two. And it brings the way that Jesus made disciples, first of all, was by being with them. He focused on a few. He poured his life into a few. And that idea is repeated again and again. You might not have noticed it, but I want to call it out for you. If you've got your Bibles, just, pa- just paged here through me. Mark 4, through with me, 4.10. Mark 4.10. When he was alone with the twelve... He explained to them the meaning of the parables. Mark 4, 34, drop down to that. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Look at the next verse, 4, 35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. And then page to Mark 6, Mark 6, 31. Jesus says to his disciples, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. And get some rest. Jesus prepared his disciples. He entrusted his disciples after he had spent time with them by being with them. They watched him heal withered hands and hemorrhaging women. They watched him raise a a 12-year-old girl from the dead. They watched him calm a storm with the command of his word. They watched him cast evil spirits named Legion out of a poor, naked, pitiful man on the far side of the Sea of Galilee. They listened as he told parables and then listened as he told them even more secretly what they meant. They listened as he took on the Pharisees and all of their judgmental legalism. They just listened and listened and watched and watched and learned and learned. In other words, this is what they did. They were just like a sponge just soaking up everything that Jesus had to say and do. This is what it means for us to be with Christ, to soak in the Lord, to soak up what he has to say and do with us. Ultimately, Jesus was able to entrust his ministry, his kingdom work to his disciples because he spent so much time with them that they grew to understand his heart and his mind. And even though they were green, even though they were inexperienced, they had come to know the heart of Christ. They'd come to know the mind of Christ. And so they were able to live the way that he was calling them to live and call others to live in that redeemed way as well. That's what we're doing with this 90-day challenge. This is not about completing a reading assignment, just checking it off the box. We are doing this so that we can ask ourselves the question, what do I learn about Jesus? What do I learn about his character? What do I learn about his courage? What what do I learn about his compassion? What do I learn makes him sad, makes him happy? What do I learn amazes Christ? And the more that we understand about Jesus, the more we soak in, the more like him we become. 
Being with Jesus is how, he, how, he, how we become his useful disciples. That's what this challenge is about. That's what worship is about. And may I say this, it is also how we make disciples. Christ was with his disciples. We must be with our, we are called to be relational, hospitable. However unqualified we might think ourselves to be, start, we start making disciples by simply being with them. Asking them over for dinner. I don't think we're necessarily great at that as a church. I know there's some cultures, some places where if you are new in church, you're going to get an invitation to go to lunch that day. I don't think we do that very well in the Northwest. Do you? Maybe you do, but I haven't sensed that. But what, what what if we buck the trend? We have a bunch of new members here who are so excited about being in this church. Will they receive the welcome that will engage them and, and, and sink them into the life of this congregation? What would it mean if you picked one of them and said, would you come have coffee? Could you come have dinner with me? This is what it means, I think, to be together. Get to know each other. Invite people into our lives and into our homes. The first five chapters of this gospel are all about the disciples being with Jesus. We, we don't see them doing anything. They just are there with Christ, coming along for the ride, spending time with Him, listening to Him. And then suddenly, boom, chapter 6. I want you to go back and, and see what I'm talking about. Chapters 1 through 5, they're just with Him, with Him, with Him, with Him, listening, watching, learning. And then, boom, chapter 6. And He launches them. Listen to verse 7. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two, gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet. And when you leave, as a testimony against them. They went out, so these were his instructions, they went out, and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. After five chapters of being with Jesus, of, he suddenly he sends them out. And this isn't just a little preaching mission. He sends them out with the authority to preach the gospel, to call them to repentance, to drive out evil spirits. They're going to do, do battle with evil spirits for crying out loud. And notice this. He sends them out intentionally under prepared, under-equipped. Those were his instructions. He said, you're not going to have all the supplies you need and I don't want you to take them. You're not going to raise all your support before you go out on the mission field. I'm sending you and if you trust me, I will provide for you. Jesus wanted them to trust him so that as he sent them into the battle, only he could win. He would be the one that would equip and supply and sustain them. It is so important that we see this. When Jesus calls us to make disciples, he wants us to depend upon him. He wants us to rely, not upon our knowledge, upon all the seminars that we've attended, all the Bible studies we've done. He wants us to reply, to rely on him, upon his spirit. He asks us to be willing, and then he does the rest. This became real to me again in Israel when I found myself in a relationship that I had not expected and I didn't feel prepared for. Just before I left, a woman came to me and said that her brother, who was going to be coming on the trip, is actually a devout practitioner of Eastern religions, including Hinduism and Buddhism. And he was going to be joining us on the trip. And she wanted to know if that would be all right. I said, it certainly is all right, but this is a Christian trip and I'm not going to pull any punches. 
Honestly, though, it made me a little nervous. Am I going to have the right answers? Am I going to know how to respond to questions he might raise? I, I didn't know what to do. So I just prayed about it. And I came to believe that if you, if you just share the gospel, share the truth of Scripture with anyone, and you love them with the love of Christ, it's the Holy Spirit that's going to do that work. I mean, that's all it is, isn't it? You share the truth, you love them, and you let the Spirit do the work. Uh, the day after we got back, I got a, a letter, an email from this guy who was a new friend. He said, I found my own faith enriched and deepened. The Holy Land has come alive for me. And I return home with a much broader perspective on and understanding of Jesus' life and mission. This is the work of the Holy Spirit through an underprepared and a little bit anxious disciple. Later in chapter 6, we see another example of this, don't we? He's teaching the crowds in this remote place and the disciples realize it's time for dinner and he wants to, he, they want him to send them home. And Jesus says, he responds this way. He says, you give them something to eat. I'm reading from chapter 6, verse 37. They said to him, that would take eight months of wages. Are we to go spend that much on bread and give it to them? Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave them thanks and broke the loaves. And he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was five thousand. Again, do you notice how Jesus entrusts his ministry to disciples even though they are ill-equipped to do what he asks of them? In fact, he even kind of plays along with it. He asks their advice about what to do as if he didn't know. He assigns them to organize the groups, in, the people into the groups of 50 and 100. He, he, after he miraculously multiplies the bread, he gives it to them and the fish. And he gives it to them to distribute. And when the meal is done, he sends them out with doggy bags. And they collect all of the scraps. How many doggy bags did they come back with? Twelve, one doggy bag for every disciple to remind them when Jesus calls us to do something, he equips, he provides what is necessary. They would take that doggy bag home and it would remind them for the rest of their life of what Christ can do for under-equipped, ill-prepared people. I realize there are some here this morning who are not yet interested in this disciple-making thing. I, I heard of one woman who said, I, basically she views her Christian faith as kind of a personal spiritual self-improvement. And she's not at all into the disciple-making thing. And I get that. But I'll bet more here are willing to do this, but feel utterly unprepared and unqualified. And here's the good news. Jesus wants to entrust you with the work of his kingdom. And he likes people who are unqualified because then you have to depend on him. How many here qualify for being unqualified? Raise your hand. See? It's perfect. It's a match made in heaven. Let me tell you the rest of Janice's story. As she lay on the ground, I was there holding her head and, and, uh, and she was in great pain and I was feeling, as I said, pretty useless and trying to think, what can I say? The last moment, the last day of her trip, she may not even make it on the airplane back. What do I have to say? And suddenly, I, I believe the Lord gave me these words and so I leaned down and I whispered to her. I said, Janice... You have the rare privilege right outside of the tomb of Jesus to share in the sufferings of Christ. 
I said, you will never forget this moment. You will never forget this moment because every time you think of it, it will remind you forever the, the pain that Christ endured for you, the price that Jesus paid for you. This is what I whispered to her. I couldn't get it out of my mouth before suddenly uh, Janice broke out into the most amazing prayer as she lay there holding her arm in pain. She said, oh, Jesus, you suffered so much more than this for me. And I am so grateful for you. Thank you for dying for me. Oh, Jesus, thank you for suffering for me. She's crying this out in front of the empty tomb of Christ. She was preaching from the ground in front of the empty tomb of Christ. And I just hovered there in all of my inadequacy, amazed to realize that God had just produced the most amazing moment of worship that I had seen right there on the ground outside the empty tomb of Jesus. As you think about Jesus' call to make disciples, how many of you find yourself saying, I don't know enough, or I'm not qualified, or what if I screw up? And the great word of this last week's readings is this, Jesus loves to take ignorant, underqualified bumblers and entrust to them the disciple-making mission to his world. 